Anytime that God does a new work, it's absolutely exciting. To be a part of something that God does on an individual or a corporate level is one of the most exciting things, especially if you've ever been involved in a revival of sorts. Um, I don't know if it's technically classified as a revival, but in the 60s and the 70s, um, there came what was called in the West Coast, and I think it's spread to other places, something called the Jesus Movement, which I was a part of. It was termed that by the world, but it was where all these hippies came to know Jesus Christ. It was absolutely exciting to see hordes, thousands upon thousands of strange-looking characters converted and come to know Jesus Christ. Antioch was experiencing a revival sort of like that. God had worked already in Jerusalem. The Word of God had spread through Judea. The Samaritans had already heard, and now it was going past Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria. And we get now to the final chapter, or the final break, division in the book of Acts. Chapter 13 to the end form one section that you could entitle the uttermost parts of the earth. A new work is now beginning in a Gentile region called Antioch. The gospel has gotten past the bounds of Judaism. And now people besides Jewish people are coming to know the Lord. And it's an exciting time. Exciting from the ground up. I imagine Paul and Barnabas were just thinking, isn't this great to see so many of these people in this area, Gentiles, coming to know Jesus Christ and they're part of our church. Now the people back in Jerusalem aren't too excited about it and in chapter 15 you'll see why. But to be in something from the ground up and to watch God move is exciting. And I can say that personally from just coming to Albuquerque and seeing this fellowship grow from four people. Myself, my wife, my best friend, and one person he invited. And to watch what God has done in the lives of so many, and because God has touched your lives, He's touched all of our lives together. And we've grown together. And it's exciting to see. And then I think, what does God have in store? Not only for us here, but other parts of the country and the world. Well, it says that uh, Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem, verse 25, when they had fulfilled their ministry, and they also took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers, Barnabas, Simeon, who is called Niger, Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, and Saul. As they ministered to the Lord and fasted, the Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Then, having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. So being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia, and from there they sailed to Cyprus. This chapter begins the great mission thrust of the early church. Up to this point, they weren't too concerned about missions. They were happy in Jerusalem. They were happy with the growth they were experiencing. They were being blessed because many people in Jerusalem were coming to know the Lord. That's where they wanted to stay. Why would you want to move from that kind of a situation? Why would anybody want to move from such a glorious fellowship? Yet God had different plans for them. He didn't want them to be in a little Christian bubble, enjoying all the blessings, going to the synagogue and the temple, seeing their friends coming to know Jesus. He wanted them out. 
He wanted them to leave the comforts of Jerusalem. And so the only way he knew to do that was to create a persecution. And I believe it was sent by God, or certainly allowed by God, certainly initiated by Satan to destroy the church, but God allowed it. Well, that persecution got these people out of Jerusalem. They were kicked out. They were forced out. In being forced out, they had to be replanted. And this persecution wave continues until they reach the northern parts of Syria. And now they're in the capital province in a town called Antioch, a great cosmopolitan, beautiful, thriving city, which was sort of like Gentile heaven. And all these scattered people, knowing the Lord, are doing evangelism in all of these parts. Jerusalem never became the missionary church. This church in Antioch did become the missionary church. I want to add before we jump in and go through these verses, and we'll probably only make it through three or four verses tonight. That's all our intention is, because this is a real important um, continental divide, if you will, in this book. But Antioch became an important school for scholars later on. This is what happened. When the Jews came back from captivity, the Jews traditionally believed that when you look at the Bible, you interpret it literally. You never take it figuratively or allegorically unless it is in its context figurative. And so they believed in it literally. When God said He would restore the nation of Israel to her land, they believed it literally. It's proven by Jewish history, their writing. When God said He would send a Messiah, they believed it literally. They didn't think a figurative Messiah-like figure would come. They believed He would come. When the Old Testament spoke of judgment, they believed God would judge the world. After a while, however, theology tends to kind of go in waves. And the people who believed in that were congregating in one part of the world, mainly Jerusalem. As the Jews settled into different parts of the world, some of them landed in northern uh, Egypt in a place called Alexandria. And uh, Alexandria had its theologians like Origen, Clement, Philo, and certain others who were influenced by the writings of Plato and Aristotle. And if you're familiar with those Greek writings, they would allegorize and write many myths and they would look at life and make a lot of analogies. Because some of the Jewish theologians were influenced by some of the Greek writers, they started also allegorizing the scripture and moved away from a literal interpretation. These Jewish scholars and then later on Christian scholars started looking at, say, the book of Genesis chapter 1 where God created a garden of Eden and he had a river and four rivers that branched out. They said, well, this isn't a literal garden and it's not a literal river. What it is is God made the mind of man and he made the virtues within man and the virtues have four different branches and he named all the different branches. And they just took everything out of the scripture and said, it really doesn't mean what it says it means. It means what I think it means. So buy and believe my interpretation. And they allegorized it so nobody knew what anything meant. After a while, people got sick and tired of this. And they developed the Antioch school of interpretation, literally looking at the scripture and saying it means what it says it means. 
Interesting, these things go in waves because after Antioch church was established, time went on and the whole Constantine mess with the Roman Empire and the Roman church came into view. And again, people started allegorizing the scripture, allegorizing the Old Testament priesthood and making all of these analogies until the Reformation. When Martin Luther had a creed, sola scriptura, only the scripture, not tradition, not passed on methods of men, but we believe in the Bible only. That's where we get our rule and practice of faith, and we believe in it literally. He took his cue from the church at Antioch, the school that developed later on. I wanted to throw that in because now you get the background to the reason why we study the Bible the way we do. Why we go through it expositionally. And we take our cues also from these men, the Antioch school. But what we want to focus on tonight is the fact that this church was ascending church. They were growing. Each member, it seems, was maturing. They pooled their resources together. And then they sent people out. Some people stayed, obviously. Not everybody in the church left the church. Otherwise, there wouldn't be a sending church. You have to have some people remain to send others out. In fact, in proportion, very few actually left. But it was a mission-minded church. And some of the missionaries tonight are going to be Barnabas and Saul, or Paul the Apostle. Henry Martin said, and I wanted to quote this to you, The Spirit of Christ is the Spirit of Missions. And the nearer we get to Him, the more intensely missionary we become. Now, I think that's true. The closer you get to Christ, the less selfish you become and the more you want others to hear about the gospel. You want other people to know about this good news. You become mission-minded. Now, you can become a missionary in Albuquerque as well as in Australia or the Philippines or anywhere else. But you become interested in getting the cause of Christ out to other people in the world. Now I want you to look at verse 25. Barnabas and Saul returned from Jerusalem. Some translations say to Jerusalem. Uh, obviously in context it's completely wrong. It's returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry. And they also took with them John whose surname was Mark. Now what were they doing? They were returning, returning from Jerusalem to Antioch. Why did they go to Jerusalem? Because you remember from the last chapter, or a couple chapters ago, that there was a famine. A prophet by the name of Agabus stood up in their assembly and he prophesied. He said, there's going to be a famine worldwide. We better make provision. And so the church began taking up an offering, and Paul collected this offering from various places and was going to deliver it down to Jerusalem. And so he went there to take an assessment and he took several trips to bring this money, this financial aid, down to Jerusalem. And then he came back. Ministry is over. He did what God wanted him to do. Now he goes back to Antioch and says, okay, Lord, I did something. Now what else do you want me to do? And I want you to notice that phrase. It's beautiful. When they fulfilled their ministry. Now that's a beautiful way of putting the work of God. Now that's something that I personally yearn for. To be able to go into a place, whether I travel to New York or stay here or go over to um, India or do a wedding or a funeral, is that I fulfill in that place, at that time, 
the service, which is what ministry means, that God has for me then. Lord, what do you have for me in this place? How long am I to remain here? When I'm finished, please let me know so I can go on and do other things that you would call me to do. I want to know that this is a service you've given me to do, and I want to know when it's over. And when I fulfill my ministry, then return and go get orders from the Lord. But I wanted to touch on something that we haven't touched on yet in the book of Acts. The church, in fact, all of the people of God, in every period of history, have always been concerned for people who didn't have as much as they had, for the needy, for the poor. And they were concerned for the poor for one very simple, basic reason. And that is, their God is concerned for the poor and the needy and the oppressed and the downtrodden. And because that's God's heart, it became their heart. And when Jerusalem, who was their spiritual father in a sense, the church sprang from there, the first work was done there, when those people were in need, they felt it their responsibility to minister back to them in the area of physical, material provision. And so they took up an offering in this famine. They delivered it to the poor saints in Jerusalem. In Acts chapter 2, and I'll just read a couple of scriptures to you. It says, all who believed were together and they had all things in common. A couple chapters later, the multitude of those who believed were of one heart, one soul. Neither did any of them say that any of the things he possessed was his own. But he had all things in common. In other words, they pooled their resources to help out the people who were poor. When Paul was doing his missionary journey and he was writing his book to the Galatians, he said, I was sent out and commissioned as an apostle to the Gentiles. And so the church in Jerusalem said, fine, send this guy out. Except they gave me an instruction, he said. They said that they desired only that we should remember the poor. The very thing that I was eager also to do. I wanted to do the same thing too because I knew that it was God's heart. Now God always places an emphasis on helping people who don't have what we have. Do you remember what the angel said when Cornelius saw a vision of the angel of the Lord coming to him? The angel said, Cornelius, your prayers and your giving of alms have come up as a memorial unto the Lord. God took notice of the fact that he prayed and he gave his resources to the poor. God took notice of it. And so he approaches Cornelius and gets the gospel over to him through Peter. Then in the early church, there was something that was really interesting called the love feast. It's sort of like our communion and a potluck mixed together. It was kind of a neat idea. They would get together occasionally. They'd have a potluck. Now, some people don't like the word potluck, so they call them pot faiths. Well, whatever you want to call them, you bring food to it, all right? And they would bring a dish, they'd get together, and people who had a lot would bring a lot of food. They'd bring the shrimp, and they'd bring the stuffed crab, and the whole deal. The people who were poor brought the chips, the salad, and whatever else they could bring. And they pooled their resources, and they had a huge meal. And after they were done, they shared the Lord's Supper, they took communion together. It was their way of meeting the needs in the early church. And there were many of them because half of the Roman Empire were slaves. And many of the slaves, 
became Christians and left the authority of their masters and the provision of their master, became slaves, and the early church had to care for them. What's interesting is that the early church did not need any other social welfare institution to do the job. It could care for its own. Now, it couldn't care for the whole world, and the church isn't meant to care for the whole world. But when you come across a need, then you're responsible, especially within the household of faith. Now, we have lots of requests during the week for people who have physical needs in the area of paying their rent, in the area of giving them groceries, and so forth. And we first try to discern, are you a member of the household of faith? If they say, yes, I'm a believer, we say, where do you attend fellowship? If they're here, we're quick to respond. If they say, this church right down the street, then we get on the phone to their church and say, you know, you're responsible for helping somebody who goes to your fellowship. If their church can't because they're constrained financially, then we try to help. But there was always in the early church the desire individually as well as corporately. And I say that, that's an important thing because a lot of people look at the institution to do it. Well, go to my church, they'll do it for you. Why don't you do it? You are part of your church. And if you see a need, you can individually help out as well as sending them to the organized institution to get the job done. They saw a need and they met it. And so they returned from Jerusalem when they had fulfilled their ministry and they took with them John, whose surname was Mark. Before we go on, I just want to say a couple more things about that. In the Old Testament, God always made provision for the needy. He told the children of Israel, when you tithe, Every third year, you're going to have a special tithe specifically for the widow, the fatherless, the orphan, the poor and the oppressed. He told the farmers, when you plant your seed and you harvest, every seventh year, let anything that grows of itself grow. Don't harvest it. Don't bring it home and sell it. Let the poor come in and have all that they want for nothing, for free. On the seventh year, the right of redemption came up for the slaves in the land, and every 50th year, the slaves were set free. If someone who is poor borrowed money, and this is a great part, they didn't have to pay any interest. Can you imagine if a poor person today had that law? If there was a law, you can borrow money interest-free. Can you imagine the interest you'd save on a home? Goodness, you know, usually you pay most of it in interest, the first several, at least half of it but just interest-free. And it was God's heart toward his poor, and his people were to pick up on that. But there's that phrase that just struck out at me today. They fulfilled their ministry. And what I like about that is that's such a beautiful, simple way of expressing giving to someone who is needy. They didn't make a big show of it. There was a need. They took up an offering. They fulfilled their ministry. They went into that town, did what God wanted them to do, and they came home. It was done in absolute simplicity. Jesus said, when you do a charitable deed, don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Don't make a big show of it, a display. Don't come swinging in like Tarzan saying, I just want everybody to know I gave $2,000 today to the poor. That's why I don't like putting up little plaques saying this wing was donated by so-and-so who gave a large sum of money so that this building could be built. I think that draws attention to the flesh rather than to the Lord. Or, don't even mention it. 
You don't have to tell people what you give. You don't have to say, well, I'm sorry I was late tonight. I was helping out the poor, giving them some money and so forth. Just drop it. Don't even mention it. Don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. Now, that's an important um, a principle that Jesus gave because the right hand was the primary hand of action. Most people were considered right-handed, although there are left-handed people. It's not a slam against you if you're left-handed. simply saying that the right hand is the primary hand of action. And there's a lot of activities that a person does throughout the day that can be done with the right hand without any aid of the left hand. And so Jesus is simply saying, you ought to be naturally, normally taking care of the poor, but doing it in such a way that it's very discreet, that you don't make a big show about it. You do it in absolute simplicity. Now, I want you to turn to a scripture concerning this, and that's in 2 Corinthians chapter 9. 2 Corinthians, the ninth chapter. We're just going to look at something that Paul said to the Corinthians here. Speaking about the gift, again, for the poor saints in Jerusalem, verse 6, But this I say, that he who sows sparingly will also reap sparingly. And he who sows bountifully will also reap bountifully. So let each one give as he purposes in his heart, not grudgingly, or of necessity, for God loves, in Greek it's literally, an absolutely hilarious giver. Now this is God's perspective on giving. It's to be done in simplicity. It's to be done in such a way that you fulfill your ministry. That you don't let your left hand know what your right hand is doing. You do it, and it's done. You don't make a big show of it. And you should always do it, not because you're pushed or cajoled into it, but because you've gone before the Lord and said, Lord, here's my finances. There are needs that these people have, that this family has, that this missionary has. What can I give? What would you have me to give? And you purpose it in your heart. And notice, not grudgingly. Golly, they're taking an offering again. Another missionary offering. Hey, keep your filthy lucre. God doesn't need it if that's your attitude. In fact, if you gave it with that attitude, you won't get any credit for it in heaven. And then it says, not of necessity. And literally that means, not with pain. Not with pain. Some people take offerings that are mighty painful. They make it so complicated when it should be so simple. And it's painful. I mean, it's like taking a crowbar and prying it out of them. Beating him over the head with it. I think that a person's it's between them and the Lord. And they will be responsible to the Lord one day for the resources that they used or didn't use to further his kingdom or to help the needy and to minister the gospel to people. For God loves a cheerful giver or a hilarious giver. And God is able to make all grace abound toward you that you, always having all sufficiency in all things, may have an abundance for every good work. So God's good. He's the one that prompts you to give. Do it as you purpose in your heart. Now, back to Acts. You notice in verse 25 that they took somebody with them. They had company person traveling with him all the time was an assistant by the name of John, also called Mark. John is his Hebrew name. Mark is his uh, Roman surname. We come across him also in verse 5. 
When they arrived in Salamis, they preached the word of God in the synagogues of the Jews. They also had John, or same person, John Mark, as their assistant. A little bit of background in this guy, because there's some lessons that I think are very valid here. John Mark was the son of a godly mother. And in chapter 12, it was at her house that the church assembled to have a prayer meeting. It seems that she was a widow. Her husband died. And so she was a single parent. And John Mark was also living at her house. She was very wealthy. And her home became a favorite kinship, if you will, a home Bible study, a place where many of the church people would gather together for Bible study and for prayer. Her brother, John Mark's uncle, was a guy by the name of Barnabas, who became not only a valuable person in the early church, but the mentor of John Mark, the one who kept encouraging John Mark to get into ministry. And it was no doubt the fact that Barnabas was traveling with Saul that enabled John Mark to come along and learn the ropes. So he had some good influences in his life. He got to watch Paul. He got to listen to Barnabas and watch them as they go on their journey. But after verse 5, the next time we read of John Mark, it's very disheartening. Up in verse 13. Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Perga in Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. He put his hand to the plow, but he looked back. It was getting too hard for him. And so he went back to Jerusalem, probably back to his mommy's house. Things were getting a little too tough on the mission trail, and he left, which was probably the best thing for him to do. Next journey that they want to take, Barnabas says, let's take my nephew, John Mark. Paul says, forget it. He ratted out on us last time. He went back home. He can't be trusted. I want a man on this trip. And Barnabas and Paul argued and their argument became so intense that they had to split company over this young man. Barnabas wouldn't give up, however, and John Mark became very valuable. Now, I don't know why he decided to leave and go back to Jerusalem in the middle of this missionary journey, but perhaps he didn't count the cost. And whatever you do in the name of Jesus Christ or for his kingdom... Count the cost. Talk to people who have gone there before you do and find out what it's all about. Because one of the worst things to do is say, God is calling me here, and then to go, and then to fall flat on your face because God didn't call you, and then He gets your bad rap. Count the cost. Make sure God is calling you to do it. There have been many casualties in the pastorate, on the mission field, in many forms of Christian service because they were overzealous or they heard a very emotional speaker give a plug for a particular ministry and they decided, I'm going to do it. But God hadn't called them or they weren't ready, they weren't prepared, it wasn't the right time or whatever. But in any case, John Mark had to go back home. But later on, he became very useful. Later on, he became a valuable friend to Paul. Later on, he wrote the Gospel of Mark. And there's a few lessons we can learn from his life. Number one, the value of a godly home. Well, let's get really, really uh, detailed. The value of a godly mother. 
It's unfortunate that this society has given women a bad rap. Oh, you're only a mother? You mean, what, do you just sit home all day and raise your children? Don't you want to have a meaningful place in society? Don't you want a career? Nothing wrong with a career. But motherhood is placed on the back burner. Not in God's book. One of the most valuable missions is motherhood. To invest godly attributes within young children. That a mother and a father, but primarily a mother, the primary nurture and caregiver can give. So valuable. Christian home, Christian upbringing, a godly woman. Became a host in the early church to Bible studies and prayer meetings in her home. There's another lesson from John Mark we can learn, and that is simply so much depends on choosing good company or good friends to hang out with. You know, my dad used to tell me this when I was a kid. He used to tell me, you know, remember your dad and mom used to tell you things you'll never forget because they said it maybe three billion times in the first three years of childhood. My dad used to say something like that. If you want to be a failure, hang around them. Of course, he was into his positive thing. And he would always use it in any walk of life. Hey, if you want to be a good student, hang around good students. Find out what they do. See how they think. If you want to be good at golf or tennis, play with somebody who's better than you. Choose good friends. Pick good company. Well, you could transfer that principle into any area of life. Hang around people who are spiritual. That doesn't mean that you should say, I'm sorry, you're less spiritual than I am. I can't rub shoulders with you. No, you can influence them because they need to hang around spiritual people too. But choose as friends people who will influence your spiritual life and your walk with Jesus Christ. Watch what they do. Ask them about their quiet time, their prayer habits, their Bible study. Pray with them. Let them be your mentor. Let them disciple you. Choose good company. And then there's a final lesson, the value of a person's life. Here's a kid who was raised in a home of a single parent. But the value of his life and what God could do through this person's life. Maybe this mom was saying, what could ever become of me and my, my family? My husband died. I'm a single parent. I'm raising this kid. It's hard. I've got to work. I've got to provide money for him. What will ever become of him? Well, his name is on the lips of almost everyone worldwide because he wrote the Gospel of Mark. He became a leader in the early church. The value of any life. It was Dwight L. Moody who was in his service one night and he was sitting up in the balcony when he was a little kid and he heard somebody speak in his church and the man simply said, the world has yet to see what God can do through the life of one man totally committed to him. And Moody was on the edge of his seat and he whispered, by the grace of God, I will be that man. The rest is history. He became a great evangelist. Many people in Chicago and the Midwest came to know Christ and so forth. The world still has yet to see what God can do through one man or one woman totally committed and devoted to Him. The value of a life, no matter what your background is, no matter what your education is, the world has yet to see what God can do through you. God is waiting to write His love in this world and use your life as that pen. And now in verse 1, now in the church that was at Antioch, there were certain prophets and teachers. Here's their names. Barnabas, quite a mix of guys. Barnabas, of course, was a Levite, 
Simeon, who was called Niger, which means black. Obviously, he was from northern Africa, and as most scholars believe, he was a black African. Also, no doubt, the one who carried the cross of Jesus Christ on the way to Calvary, Simon of Cyrene, who became a believer. Lucius of Cyrene, Menaean, who had been brought up with Herod the Tetrarch, the guy who cut off the head of John the Baptist, so a real good friend of Herod's, and Saul. These were all leaders in the early church. What a mix. What a background. Different colors, different backgrounds. Uh, one a terrorist, uh, one a rabbi, one the encourager of the early church, all put together. And as they ministered to the Lord... And they fasted. The Holy Spirit said, Now separate to me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. And having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and they sent them away. They ministered to the Lord. What does that mean? The NIV translates it, worshipped. Is that right? They worshipped the Lord. It would be literally in Greek, as they ministered to the Lord in sacred things. And worship is a perfect description of that. In fact, I think that's the best definition of worship I've ever heard or read anywhere. What is worship? It's ministering to the Lord. Now that should put it for us in proper perspective. If you think about that, when you come and you have your quiet time in the morning, you have your time or at night, whenever you spend time alone with the Lord, when you come for a church service, a Thursday night or a Sunday morning or a Sunday night, And you come to sing and to lay your sacrifice of praise before the Lord, as Hebrew 13 says. What you are doing is you are ministering to the Lord. You know, that's such a different concept for people. Because they look at worship as something totally different. They look at worship as something I should be getting out of it. They want to come to worship and feel uplifted and feel good. And they think the primary purpose that a worship group or a choir, or a worship service exists in a church is so that they can feel good and feel closer to God. When that is not why worship is participated in. It is for God, not for us. It's not for you at all. You don't worship, or you shouldn't worship, for what you can get out of it, or for what God can do for you, but because of who God is to you. It's for the Lord. I am ministering to Him. How many times do we pray, Lord, minister to this brother. Minister to this sister. But what about ministering to the Lord? That's what the Scripture means in Psalms when it says, I will bless the Lord at all times. Can you imagine you blessing God? God, I'd like to be a blessing to you today. I'd like to bless you, Lord. You know, usually we say, Lord, bless me, please. Or bless us. But here it's blessing the Lord or ministering to the Lord. And that is so important. That's why we worship. It's for God. When we are in the Word, God speaks to us. When we worship the Lord, it's for the Lord. God's our audience. The person sitting next to you isn't your audience. The worship group isn't your audience. And you know what? You're not their audience. Whether you like them or not, probably they don't care. What they're concerned about is what God, sitting upon His throne, is thinking about their worship. And by their worship, we are led into the presence of God. And so we minister to Him, God, this is for you. 
And because God is omniscient, he knows if it truly is ministering to him and blessing him and from our hearts to do that or not. You see, worship has become, for so many people, a cheap means of self-gratification. And you'll always be able to tell in a person's life if it is or not. When they head for the back door and they put their hands in their pocket and get their keys out, if they say, didn't get much out of worship tonight. Or if you think those thoughts, you'll know that that person or yourself are trying to use worship as a means of self-gratification. And any time we do that, we are twisting the whole purpose of it. It's meant to minister to God. And when we twist it around, we are making God, not the Lord, but our servant. And worship becomes a means of self-gratification. I found something by A.W. Tozer I thought you'd like. He said, Whoever seeks God as a means toward a desired end will not find God. For God will not be used. Boy, that's right on, isn't it? Whoever seeks God as a means toward a desired end will not find God, for God will not be used. Did you know that your satisfaction in your walk with the Lord, your satisfaction in worship, is inversely proportional to your seeking for it? Say say again. The more you seek to be satisfied personally, I just want to be satisfied, I want to feel good, therefore I'm going to come to worship and I'm going to do this to make me feel good, the less you become satisfied. You see, God said, Jesus said, seek first the kingdom of God and then all these things will be added to you. Don't even seek to be... Self-gratification is your goal. That's not your goal. It's to please God, to serve God. And when your goal is God-oriented, you find that your life is filled to the max. So much that you can't contain it. But when it's just to feel good, you never attain. You never reach it. It's never attained by direct pursuit. I think I've told you this before, but uh, I had a couple come to me when we were in our old building one morning. I don't know what kind of a mood I was in, but they came up to me anyway after the second service, and they shook my hand. They were a very nice couple, but they looked at me, kind of folded their arms, and they said, well, just want you to know that we're visiting you and we're kind of eyeing you out to see what you have to offer us. And I thought, boy, that's the consumer mentality, isn't it? I'm coming to this church to see what you have to offer me. I'm going to go on the shelf of all the cereal boxes, mark this church, that church, and just look at the ingredients to see if it's going to be satisfying to me. Of course, you want to be filled and fed and so forth, but hey, I turned to them and I said, what do you have to offer us? Are you going to come and just watch? Or are you going to come and participate and be part of the body of Christ? Because you see, if you come just to watch, you're not a church member. It's like a football game, basketball game. Come in, watch. Game's over, go home. Next game, get a ticket, sit down, watch it. Go home when the game's over. Sometimes the games are very entertaining. Sometimes the game is status quo. But never participating, the whole idea of worship in church is twisted. They ministered to the Lord and, or they worshiped, 
and they fasted. Notice in the scripture that fasting is never done alone. It's never uh, an end in itself. It's always accompanied with prayer. It's not a sanctified diet. It's the withholding of food and other things that would satisfy you so that you can seek the Lord. Fasting is always negative. You withhold something from you. But it's done for the positive that you might key in and receive from God. It's always done in conjunction uh, with ministering to the Lord. And then it says, The Holy Spirit said, Separate unto me Barnabas and Saul for the work to which I have called them. Having fasted and prayed, they laid hands on them and sent them away. And so, being sent out by the Holy Spirit, they went down to Seleucia. From there they set sail, or they sailed, to Cyprus. We read in two verses. One verse says the church sent them out. The other verse says the Holy Spirit sent them out. Which is the truth? Both. The Holy Spirit has to send you out, or it doesn't do any good for the church to send you out. And if the Holy Spirit is sending you out, it would be foolish for the church not to send you out. And the truth is, no man can prepare you for ministry. Only God can. And when God calls you, and then you are prepared by Him, and there's a number of means to do it, it can be by school or without it, or whichever way. But once the Holy Spirit is evidenced in your life, leaders are going to pick up on that. Say, this person's anointed. And encourage you to start doing something. Get behind you and say, you know, I think you ought to be involved in this. And so it's both. The Holy Spirit sends them out, and also the church sends them out. And I think it's important that we keep that in mind And when any time we want to do something for the Lord. Because there's two extremes that people have when serving the Lord. One, there is a tendency that some people have toward individualism. I don't need any group of people. I don't need anybody. I get my orders from God. I'm not accountable to any church, any human being, any group. That's wrong. Everyone needs accountability. Everyone needs encouragement. Everyone needs belonging. Everyone needs a family. Read 1 Corinthians 12. It should convince you right off the bat of that fact. That's one tendency, individualism. The other extreme is just as wrong, institutionalism. All I need to do is get somebody to lay hands on me, get a certificate, get an education, and I'll be prepared. Without the endorsement, the ratification, the anointing of the Holy Spirit. Both of those are extremes. Both are wrong. The Holy Spirit was calling them. The church saw it. They fasted. They prayed. And I love that was their first response. A work needed to get done. They didn't call a committee meeting. They consulted the Holy Spirit. Good old-fashioned praying and fasting over a position that needed to be filled. They laid hands on them, and then they sent them out. In 1973... 72 and 73, I had hair down to here. I wore thongs, I wore shorts and a t-shirt, and half the time my shorts and my t-shirt were filled with salt water because I just got out of the ocean surfing. And I remember the first time I walked into a little country church at that time in California. It was a tent. And I sat on on the floor. I thought it was really weird the first time I went because I saw people, some people with their hands raised, and I thought... This is goofy. How could anybody... What's what's this nonsense? The Lord hadn't touched my heart yet. He finally got a hold of me. And in 1973, from that point on, I kept going to this church and I kept getting fed and I kept coming in my thongs and my shorts and my t-shirt and salt water. I put salt all over the rug because I sat on the rug by the stage. I was never turned away. I was always accepted, but I was always challenged. 
And I heard my pastor always say that scripture that I love to quote, the eyes of the Lord go to and fro throughout the entire earth to show himself strong on behalf of those whose hearts are perfect toward him. And I'd always go home thinking, God, I'd really like you to use me someday for something. I don't know what, but something. But you know, the Lord, I'm sure, was always speaking to my heart, saying, don't wait for someday. How about now? How about right now? And I remember I was driving my car from Santa Ana to Huntington Beach. I was crying. I was crying out to God, God, I, I want to be used. Someday, Lord, someday use my life. Someday. When, God, but someday. And off to the left there was a building site. And never forget the sign. They were putting a building up. It wasn't completely finished yet, but they were selling the space in it. And they had a huge sign that says, Available now. And I said, Lord, when will you use me? Lord, someday. And I looked over and I just saw this big sign, Available now. And I kept driving and I thought, it just like an arrow to my heart. Lord, I want to be available to you right now. I didn't really know what that meant until I parked down by the ocean one night, that same night. It's about 1 in the morning, 12 midnight, I don't know. Took a walk on the beach and I said, Lord, I want to be available to you. I want you to use me. Your eyes are looking for someone to use. Use me someday. But that sign kept coming to my mind, available now, available now, available now. I said, all right, I'm available now. What do you want me to do? I was very confused. I was sitting on a lifeguard tower when I was having this conversation with God and I heard a crunchy noise. And I looked down under the lifeguard tower. There was a guy, I don't know why, but at one in the morning on the beach under a lifeguard tower eating a bag of Cheetos. And I thought, this has got to be a setup. This is what God must mean, available now. All right, I'm available now. And I hopped down and I just started witnessing to the guy. I led him to Christ. And that was a lesson for me. I can be used by God anytime, anywhere I want to be. And that God will use those experiences and your faithfulness in those little experiences and He'll just keep moving you. And He'll keep using you. And He'll move you from glory to glory. And I was challenged with the simplicity of just going out and letting God use you. And that's why I moved to this town. And you know what I pray, and I've been praying the last couple of weeks, is for many of you, that God would use, especially those of you who are young men and who want to be involved in the ministry and have the freedom to move, that God would raise up many of you as pastors and send you out to start churches. Even as hundreds have left the church that I used to go out and pastor churches, that people would leave from this church and begin fellowships, begin teaching, go to a new community, be a missionary, and go out and try it. Risk it. The world is yet to see what God can do through you. But then there are those people like John Mark's mother who live in the city. They're not going to get out. They don't have the mobility. They've raised their family or they're raising them. Lord, what about me? I want to be used. I can't go out and start a church. Bob, but God can still use you just like he used her. I want to close with this. Something that a woman wrote. Lord of all pots and pans and things, since I have no time to be a saint by doing lovely things or watching late with thee or dreaming in the dawn light or storming heaven's gates, make me a saint by getting meals and watching up the plates. Although I must have a Martha's hands, I do have a merry mind. 
And when I black the boots and the shoes, thy sandals, Lord, I find. I think of how they trod the earth, what time I scrub the floor. Accept this meditation, Lord, I haven't time for more. Warm all the kitchen with thy love, light it with thy peace. Forgive me all my wrongdoing, or excuse me, forgive me all my worrying. Make all my grumbling cease. Thou who didst love to give men food in room or by the sea, accept this service that I do. I do it unto thee. And you know, God accepts that. And if you're a mother or you're in some kind of a confined situation, you see people going out and doing great missionary works or perhaps wanting to start churches or so forth, God will use you just where you are. And what a special, when I hear of this child being brought into a home, What a ministry. Who knows, but that child might not be a Billy Graham someday. But it needs to be passed on by someone. What a privilege. Now let's pray. Heavenly Father, we would pray. My prayer tonight is twofold. First of all, in general, that all of us would catch a glimpse of the work of the kingdom wanting to get out, no matter where or what, but that we would take our lives, and lay them before you and get direction and move in that direction. Specifically now, Lord, I pray for the raising up those young men that would go out and start churches. You raise up Paul's, Barnabas's, Peter's, those who would go out into new communities and do a work, new parts of the country, new parts of the world. Raise them up, give them a shepherd's heart. And then, Father, we pray for those who could never go because of circumstances, that they would see their job, their vocation as a mother, as a calling from God, or a father, that they would do their work as unto you, Lord, and decide that they would invest their lives and not just spend them. In Jesus' name, amen.